Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Each episode, we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of Norwegian director Eric Pope's new film, The King's Choice. The film follows Norway's King Haakon VII during three days in 1940, when he faced a moral decision about whether or not to cooperate with the invading German army. Greatly outnumbered and facing almost certain defeat, Norwegians, following their king's choice, broke all rules of international diplomacy and warfare. The film was screened as part of the DGA's Global Cinema Series, which aims to spotlight landmark foreign films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of contemporary, classic, and independent films, as well as conversations with their directors. Mr. Pope's previous film, Hawaii Oslo, was the inaugural film of the Global Cinema Series. Since 2004, the program has screened 97 films from 46 countries around the world. The King's Choice was the Norwegian submission for Best Foreign Language Film at the 2017 Academy Awards. In addition to The King's Choice and Hawaii Oslo, Mr. Pope's credits include the award-winning feature films One Thousand Times Good Night and Troubled Water. Following the Global Cinema Series screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Pope spoke with fellow director Victoria Hochberg about filming The King's Choice. During their conversation, Mr. Pope touches on the value of having 12 weeks of rehearsal time with his actors, the extensive research process for the film, which involved pouring over 17,000 pages worth of books and interviews, and the visual strategy of the film, which utilized a handheld camera technique rather than Steadicam. Okay, please welcome the director of this amazing piece of work, Eric Pope. Um, we had dinner, and uh, one thing that came up was the kind of history of how did Norway accept a guy who wasn't Norwegian as king. So Eric said he would give a very brief explanation of how that happened. Do you not want to do it? Or? Yeah, well, I can. Okay. I can try to do it shortly. Uh, in 1905, Norway experienced for the first time since the 15th century to once again be a free country. Um, Norway was actually sort of the place where kings were invented. It was the, it, it, the first kings who appeared, they were the Viking kings, and uh, Norway was a proud um, sort of monarchy, or they had different kings. But then uh, they disappeared in the 15th century, and Norway was a part of uh, Denmark. And later, while Denmark was, was losing in the Napoleon Wars, they had to hand over Norway to Sweden. So Sweden took over, uh, over Norway in the 1814. And uh, finally, in 1905, people resisted and, and sort of said, enough is enough, we want to be our own country. And they almost declared war to Sweden. 
and uh, just uh, some hours before it all bro broke out, the Swedish king said, okay, you can take, the, take your country back. And Norway became a, a sovereign nation. Uh, but then people got almost like panic. We need to do something so the Swedes don't regret and come back and take us, or the Danes decide they want to take the country. So um, some of the most prominent people in Norway at that time said, we need a king. Where can we find a king? Uh, and uh, they looked all over and then decided in Denmark, uh, the Danish king, he had two sons. The oldest son was, of course, to be the next Danish king. Why don't we ask the youngest son if we want to be our king? This Danish guy. <laughs> so they went to Copenhagen and they asked him. And, uh, and he was sort of the, the, the smart guy because the, uh, his older brother, he was a lazy guy. He knew he was going to be a king in Denmark. So he did. But this young guy, he was well-educated. Um, he was interested in the world. Um, he was um, uh, quite sort of, um, well, um, he was a smart guy. And, and, but what he said is that, well, um, I'll accept to be your king if your people want me, if, if that's your people's wish. And those, you know, the, uh, the, the, the politicians, and they said, well, you know, of course they want you, you know, uh, we ask you, you know, can you just accept? And he said, I will accept under one condition that you go back to Norway and you have an election. Because if I will be your king, I will serve you uh, and I will serve your people. Because to be a king here in, in, in a country like Norway, I want to define that uh, part of that, that role differently. Uh, I want to be watching and seeing it as on top of the society are the people. The people are the one uh, deciding um, how we're going to rule this country. And under the people you guys are, in the parliament, don't forget that you are serving the people. It's not the opposite. And on the bottom am I. I'm your king, so I'll do whatever I can do for Norway. What's best for Norway is what I will do whether it serves me or not, whether, you know, my family will be threatened or we can be killed, but I will, I will use my life to serve the people. So he sort of was the first king and the only king ever who have sort of put the model upside down. Because all the kings, they are sort of, you know, like, like, like the French um, king in, in, in before the revolution, like the British king today, the queen, uh, all over, they are sort of like have that, with God, I'm ruling this country, and, and, and you know, it, those stupid things. But he made that one single sentence, I'll give my all for Norway, and put everything upside, upside down. So he was just like, a, he was strange enough like a Democrat. And that, the world has never seen anything like that. And, and so, in a way, he created the most modern uh, monarchy uh, in the world today. And that also leads us into this story and why he actually felt that he had to sacrifice his family and everything to, to do what he had to do. He even had to sacrifice part of the people's safety by putting it into the war. Um, so he was this really rare figure and, and someone uh, which when I've been going into this subject, I'm, I'm 
got so much respect for that man. Um, so that that was my short uh, short answer on your long yeah, that's question. A, yeah, that's a good segue because um, I did want to talk about the beginning of this project. So it, it was a book, and then it became a screenplay. And so where where what was your participation in the development of the story aside from the passion that you have to talk about this situation and this wonderful king? What just it's in, ter in terms of Directing, what was your your participation in that regard in terms of developing the script? Well, I was presented for the script. Uh, the, the book wasn't released yet, but I was presented for the script, um, and I read it. Um, and felt that the book was sort of emphasizing the whole attack on Norway, uh, which lasted for several months, really. Um, but the fact that um, I I didn't want to make a, a, a war movie, um, I felt that it needed to be a, an, an, an sort of a close, tight perspective on the story, and I wanted to see how I could challenge the sort of historical, epical drama um, by seeing what can we do now to get close to get. get bring the audience into the feeling of almost being there. Uh, because I feel most of the movies we do, historical movies, they are a bit, you know, staged, set up. And um, in a way, I felt that I needed to make some decisions uh, that this story is about those three days, the three most dramatic days, because during those three days, we really didn't know what was going to happen. Anyway, by the end of these three days, we declare war towards Germany. And we were, at that time, the first country to actually declare war to Germany. Uh, the Poland, they were just attacked and taken. And, and, and Denmark were just, you know, they just had to hand over the country after 45 minutes. His brother. And his brother, right. yeah. His big brother. His big brother. So, um, but they actually declared war. And um, that was extraordinary, in a way. Um, so I felt that I needed to make, find out where to tell this story and what to take out of the story, how to limit it. In the, and for every story I do, I always set up really strong rules, you know, for what this film is not about. Um, and that, that's an, an interesting exercise. But it helps everyone to say that, okay, this is a story about the king. And how could I relate to that story? Um, as, of course, it's a story about how Noe was taken over by the Germans. But for me, it was much more a story about relationships uh, between a father and a son and about a family. And it's a relationship about a, a, a German ambassador and his wife and his little kid. Uh, and everything is taken from what we know. Um, too good to be true to put in a film, but that was actually what happened. Well, it was you've sort of a, you've asked your my second question, which is that this of all the films of World War II, the one that seems closest when I was looking at it was Casablanca, which is not about the 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 the, the battles, but at the center is a love story. So you have a love story between father and son, in in, in essence, and 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 between the king and his people, and between 
the German ambassador, who of course is one of the more phenomenal characters, and his t being torn between his duty and his passion to make peace, to do his job right. So the, the, it's, it is all about the relationships. Of course, you did the battles, which were wonderful, but that was my main interest in how did you s decide to sculpt that? What were the rules that you said this isn't about? What was, what was it not going to be about then? Well, I wanted, um, I've done a PhD where I've studied how we are setting up our stories in movies compared to literature uh, and how, uh, how far they come in literature and how free they are to limitate and just, you know, sort of choose really, really close perspectives. Avoid everything around. I mean, you just go in and, it, and, and start following a character without knowing too much, and, and by the time you need you learn to know more about that character. And uh, by looking at what can I take out, uh, I started two, two movies back um, to look into see what I could remove, uh, take out of movies, and, and sort of make strip them more naked uh, and down to the bone. And um, even um, avoid like establishing shots. Um, now this film started by me just going for the king. Then I felt that, okay, I needed to see the story from the other perspective, from the German side. And then I felt that the German ambassador was the most interesting figure because he was like a good German. And remember that there were a lot of them who really were fighting to avoid war conflict. I mean, he was not like a Nazi. Um, the interesting thing that he was part of the foreign department, you know, and, and they were all kicked out after the first weeks because Hitler didn't need them. He just put in his military people instead. But then um, I wanted to say, okay, so that's the other perspective. Um, and um, by being with the king and them, I couldn't cut to, for instance, being with a young crown prince by himself. I couldn't cut to the, the, the politicians being by themselves if it wasn't for that the king or the ambassador was in the room. I just was with them all the time. Now, finally, I needed to show some sequence of war to remind us and to show those two most important battles which actually and made the king escape uh, and came, come out of this alive. And that was, of course, in the beginning when they stopped the ship coming into the Oslo and, and captured the king and, and, and the parliament, uh, the government. Uh, and then once again, when these young soldiers stopped the Germans from taking the king, they were really close. Um, so even in those stories, I wanted to see the whole thing from that person's perspective. Yeah, focus very closely on yeah. the commander at the beginning and on that one beautiful... Seberg. Yeah, that's right. So I'm always with Seberg. I'm all, you know, so I don't cut to other places, even physically around, uh, you know, w when I, I capture the, 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 the battle scene, it's always seen from Seberg's point of view. Right. And that's sort of, by doing that, I'm, I'm, I believe that I'm bringing the audience closer into being there. Uh, right. Not remi reminding them as much as about that this is a movie, but just See what can we do to, you know, get a closer intimacy between you and the audience and what's going on on the screen. Well, one thing we did talk about before was um, that the king seemed 
not to be a king in the way that we're used to, you know, which is, was a, he didn't have, there was almost no separation between him and the people on the train. There wasn't that sense of he is a, a special being. He was, and, and so when anything is happening to him, he feels very human. All of them. That was one of the great things about this film. A German who we've seen, this is a phenomenal actor. He, you really do feel that he's in a vise and he's so good. Um, so, so the humanity of all the characters, even the son, who, you know, most of the, the sons all want to be king and he even says, I don't want to be a king like you, but yet he's tremendously compassionate towards his father. Just anyway, but, but when you focus on the relationships, then you really are talking about working with actors, which is, of course, what we all do. And so what was your approach with them? Each of these actors obviously is different. Your, your king is a very well-known actor, isn't he? A Danish actor. Yeah. And um, uh, Kurt, what's his last name? Mark Carl, Carl Markovich. Carl Markovich mm. is a brilliant actor. Did any of you see, we, we showed um, the... the um, Conf when the money's not the real money, it's... Uh, the counterfeiter. Counterfeiter? The, the counterfeiter. Yeah. How, we showed that film here. I don't know if any of you were here when we, when we did it, but he's incredible in that. Mm -hmm. And so clearly he's not going to have the same training as, as the young son. So how did you work with each of them? Uh, uh, did you rehearse? Did you have... Did you did you did one side guy say I don't like to rehearse and you know what what were some of the things that you did in in, in those with those struggles with them? Well, I prefer uh, to go into the production and see how can I set up and finance uh, a, a lot sort of a, a bigger period of time of of uh, going in in the rehearsals and uh, for almost all my movies uh, I've. I've been working a lot in theater as well, and in the theater I always get eight weeks of rehearsal. And for me it's strange that when doing a film, I'm not allowed to use more than two or three weeks of rehearsals. I think that's strange. It that's should be the opposite. two or three weeks more than you get in television. So, yeah, I know. So I've introduced the idea of working 12 weeks with actors. That doesn't mean that we're sitting there every day working with a text. But how do we get into the subject, into the characters? How do I bring them into my research? How do we meet people? How do we go around, travel, uh, preparing? So um, um, for my other movie before, I, I got Juliette Binoche and, and um, in for 12 weeks. She had never had anything more like two or three weeks. And we went to Syria. Then she was doing a war photographer. Uh, and we went all over. Uh, of course, she needed to learn, uh, and it takes time. And by the time we're traveling around, living together close for 12 weeks, um, I can allow myself to remove two, three, up to four days of shooting, maybe a week of shooting, because then we are so prepared. And that allows me to introduce my actors for another way of of, of setting up the stories by shooting scenes all through, um, as you see here as well. So like here there are scenes, for instance, when you see the scene where, where the king and the ambassador finally meet and they have their re really historical meeting. That's a meeting which took place, lasted for 10 minutes, 
And that is actually shot in one shot, as you probably will see. The camera is moving around for those tense minutes. I certainly did notice that. Actually, that was going to be my next question. You, maybe I'll give you this well. paper and you can, <laughs> I'll answer. Um, no, I, 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 of course, that was astonishing. But I did notice, though, that you must have had another camera in there for maybe for an earlier take when the other gentleman, you had like four or five people in that room, and you did have cuts in there. But once Hare, whatever his name is, walked in, that was, I said, I don't believe he's, I kept saying to myself, I don't believe he's doing this. You know, it was so, so my question is, did you block it for them? Did you rehearse and did they know where they were going? Because at a certain point, the king seemed to be trying to get away and, and the ambassador was like stalking him. Yeah. And there was a little bit of, you know, he covered him a little bit. So I, I, I just did, how, did you have marks or did you say, look, here's, you have to do this, you have to do this. Just go, and we'll follow you like a documentary. Mm. Well, um, I, I felt that um, going in, working with the rehearsals, is about starting looking at the characters, look at the scenes. And most of all, I don't start changing the scenes, the dialogue. I want us to keep on looking and searching for why they're doing what they are. And then start doing the physics by bringing them into a room and going through the scenes and prolonging them, what, what happens before afterwards. And then, just in an empty room, do that several weeks before we shoot it. And um, feel for the physics and see how they relate. And, and by that time, uh, we sort of figure out how um, he's trying to sort of capture following him. So. Right. I would say that that's done. That comes from out of the actors. I need to be open, allowing them to see what happens. And, and uh, we are playing with the scenes. Um, and, uh, and then I'm bringing them really into higher tension. And we do the scenes and I'm lifting it up uh, and, and sort of um, twisting it in and see how, how much of the emotions can we get out of it. And I'm never afraid for that they're not able to do it again. Because it's actually the opposite. If an actor knows that he's done it once, he knows he can do it again. And then uh, I'm leaving this scene, so for the last couple of weeks, uh, we are I'm, I'm, we're working with other stuff, like, like uh, small physics things and, and, and what they need to learn and whatever. So then we, I left the rehearsals uh, for the actual scenes. We're just doing other stuff. And then... Um, uh, in the morning, we, uh, for the first time again, discuss the scenes uh, and uh, read through, feel a bit for how, how they, they could work. And then we go into the room uh, and I allow them to just be there, feel the sensor room. Uh, and then I'm bringing the camera and um, we shoot. And um, So there, you don't have marks? No, so I don't have marks. But then uh, we... we I know what's going to happen around, right. and I can tell um, the DOP or the operator what I believe will happen. And uh, once again, as in this film, I told that you are the only one here. You need to capture this like a documentary. Uh, you, and, and this is a, an important moment, you know. So please, you know, follow your instinct uh, and see how that works. It, it was really spectacular. It was just, and you feel the, 
you know, I can't believe that none of the actors said, hey, I'm dry, I've been doing, you know, this is like take, or we've rehearsed this 18 times, I don't have anything left. I'm really, that's unusual, because most actors... But, but I would say it, it's, uh, I have uh, everything to thank my actors for, because they are, they, are, they are the ones really doing it. And of course, uh, we all know that uh, different actors have different techniques. So once again, uh, working with the kids um, is another issue. Right. Um, well, <laughs> but it's it's well, sort of like well, how do you the little piggy scene? Yeah, the little piggy scene. I mean, that was clearly. How did you get that kid to? Did you improvise? Did you have the granddad, the the grandfather, the king? I I did um, make some um, some sort of uh, practice practical um, things for the kid to work with. So we, we practice sort of the scene, but I did uh, write a scene um, a bit different from this one, and we practiced that for a while, uh, also some weeks before. So when we came to the, the actual shooting day, um, that boy knew what was going on, and then he got new lines, um, and he was just reading the lines, and um, and um, we just did it. How he, he was, what, four years old, five years old? Yeah, four years old, yeah. And what about the girls? I thought, what did he tell those girls? Because they were really upset, the little daughters. Mm. What, how did, just, you know, I've worked with some ch child actors, and they're not easy, so what was mm. the secret there? What did you do to elicit that? Well, first of all, it was just a matter of establishing a natural relationship to to the ones who are supposed to be their father, mother and father and grandfather. And uh, so during the whole shooting, uh, there were, as we were traveling around, uh, they were with us all the time. So they had two, three days off, but they were still there. Uh, and uh, they were using their, their character names. So Jesper uh, wasn't Jesper, but he was he was king. Also he was Håkon, or what they were allowed to call him, grand granddad. Right. And uh, um, both for for Jesper and for uh, the guy, guy playing, uh, so Olaf, the, the the father and mother, they were in a way in character. Um, they went out of their character, and they were you know um, for the afternoon, but still they were. Uh, using those names on the kids, and they just they they established a relationship. So when we did the scene, the farewell scene, yeah. where they all know that I will never ever see them again, and that was actually what what went on. Uh, those kids, uh, and we were of course I was preparing them for a farewell scene, and I also did that. That was the last scene we did with them. So. They were also upset because we were done with the movie, the film. So it was true they weren't going to see him again. No, they were they oh, weren't, and they, and they were they were upset because now it was all over. They they were looking forward to this shoot for months, and then we did it, and they were having fun, and uh, this was it. So the oh, tears uh, came by um, natural reasons. Um, the father-son relationship. There's an amazing moment when he's reading his speech. And he kind of stumbles a little bit, and this he puts his hand out, and the son puts his hand on his father's hand. Was that something that you had rehearsed, or did that just happen? <laughs> that was quite beautiful. Yeah. Well, um, I would say that it uh, we we 
we found that by the way people had described that meeting because in that there were several people there and they had written books and they were written in the diaries that most of all uh, what went on and uh, the moment in the speech were right and um, and they were describing that uh, the young crown prince were suddenly helping his father because his father got problems with in his speech so we knew that but exactly how it was supposed to be was uh, once again um, how we figured it out by the by the rehearsals yeah. and i would once again emphasize that make a plan um, do rehearsals um, the actors love it if you got a plan and an idea about what we're looking for because that's you know what you get in those rehearsals um, one one other directorial thing um, I can understand how you can do it with you know excuse me um, I, I just want to know in terms of <clears throat> blocking the more complicated scenes like when the the young boy soldiers they're they're being spoken to by their sergeant or whatever you call him in Norway Again, did you block that carefully where the cameras would go? or Because you had a lot of background action also. So how much leeway did you give? You mean during the battle scene? No, no, no. not during the battle scene. When but he's, in when the he's, barn when they're waiting? or Well, no. that was also, no, when the, he first gets the troops together in the snow outside, yeah. the exterior day scene. Yeah, right. Um, it, again, it felt, I felt I was watching a news a news news coverage and you know of course that's yeah. what makes it so real and so terrific but how much of that uh, these are real lines that of course they had to say but how much of that did your cameraman have leeway also when some at one point the young crown prince gets out of the car and he follows him but that mm. kind of thing how much leeway did you get give your cinematographer well, when that, you, I'm sorry. Go it, on. Well, that that scene it is a 360, as you see. So the the, yeah. the, the, the of course it's 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 blocked because people I need to know what's going on Where and and uh, the cameraman is is that's one take as you see there right. are no cut in it right. so that actually probably creates a, a, a sense of being there as well that is everything is going on around um, so it is blocked but. Um, um, I, I made a rule and I said that I want to shoot this film as we are a documentary team. So I didn't allow any cranes or dollies or even put the camera on a tripod. It was always handheld. handheld right. But uh, I wanted I wanted it to look like, so I made a rule that we are a documentary team who wants to make the film look like we are a feature team. So you're allowed to have a track in, but you have to hold it on your shoulder and keep your breath and just track it in there and avoid every sort of movement in the camera if you don't have to do that. Uh, because the only thing is that, that those small, small, tiny movements, organic movements, I believe create something uh, in our perception. So that was, that was a rule. Um, no steady cam. This was handheld. <laughs> yeah. Film, di digital. What did you use? No, it was done on the raw on the digital. So, um, but yeah, uh, and I was surprised that it worked so well oh, in the night scenes. And then, if you look at the battle scene, 
Uh, that's actually one single shot. I've, I've made like five, six cuts in it. But that whole scene, whatever happens in all the area around, is shot all together. So the whole battle scene included him falling in the, in, in the snow and me cutting back and they, you know, the whole escape there. Um, it, we practiced for two days. Then came the evening and we prepared for shooting the, 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 the whole scene. And we shot that whole scene, or those two scenes, in one. So by um, by starting f uh, filming it around when the, when the sun was down, about six, seven o'clock, uh, by nine o'clock we were done. Wow. So one camera, not two cameras. One camera. Never two cameras. And I would like to share a moment there because uh, I had like about five to six hundred extras in those scenes. And we were practicing. And uh, and um, and then we were all preparing to shoot the scene, uh, just waiting for the light. People had got their dinner, and everyone was, was ready. And uh, our, we had mobilized, so there was you know tons of groups out there with people on the walkie-talkies, and you know we had all the communication set up, just waiting, preparing. And um, um, and suddenly, you know, uh, the light was disappearing. I was supposed to supposed to start shooting. Then suddenly, I got a message that there is someone visiting the set. And I said, Who, well, forget about that, we have to shoot. And they said, but um, Eric, it's uh, Seberg, Fredrik Seberg, um, the, 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 the young boy, but the old man today. Uh, is, are we allowed to bring him into the set to, for him to watch the scene? I said, of course, bring him in. And then um, I just felt that, well, just hold it. get." Everyone in, fast, fast, fast! You know, you know, like an urgent. Bring everyone up here, and uh, the whole set of people. Everyone came up to the camera, and in came uh, Seberg, and uh, there was all these young men, and then we all realized he came in. He walked there. Was an he was an old man, watching them, and by that time it was just like remember, you're all. You're, you're all doing a character which really was, you know, alive doing what he did. So th what we're going to do is so real. It's so important for this generation. So please do it honestly, you know, re on real. And, and then um, uh, Fredrik Seber, he just um, went over and watched all these young kids. And he went through them and he was handshaking people. Mm -hmm. And those young men... The tears were just running, you know, they were just totally upset, uh, crying, crying, crying for that man. Uh, and then we said, okay, are we ready? Good. And they all went out oh. and we prepared for this, this whole uh, thing. Uh, and, uh, and by um, doing it two or three times, which took like two hours, or I had three takes and we were all happy. That was it. Well, I'm getting a you know, get the hook here from Matt. We only have a few minutes left, so I wanted, I have a few more questions, but does anybody have a question that they would like to ask? Yes, the young, the lady there with, I can't see because there's a light, but I know you have a lot of dark hair. Well, to be honest, take the last thing, uh, there's not much left from the book. 
we need to, I needed to go in and we really do the, the, the research as I told in front. Uh, we, we read more than 17,000 pages of, of, uh, of whatever was in, in different books and whatever and, and, and interviewed all these people to figure out what happened and how were people related to each other, how were they talking to each other and whatever. And then again, um, uh, putting and, and, and looking for the details as much as the overall story because this shouldn't be a story about a king. It should be a story about a man actually named Carl. Now he's gotten the new name Håkon. He had to take a Norwegian name when he then became the king. But it's a story about him. Uh, and um, um, I'm basically, yeah, it's in the script, that thing. Uh, he did the hide and seek. So I've removed a part of the scene um, when he's looking for the kids, just to, of course, make it as it is. But, but I felt that was a quite strong allegory for for what what a lot of people in Norway all you know they, they were they were at that stage because the war hadn't started yet but uh, a whole Europe was shaking and and um, by what we know today they should have realized that soon there were going to be an attack but Norway was at that norm, you know a, a neutral country uh, they were Dependent on that, the Germans would um, respect that, but of course they didn't. But um, um, I felt that was sort of, yeah, it was like an allegory and a start for the story who ends up by have to see, have to learn, have to know, and have to act. So um, uh, he starts as a lot of the leaders do today. Most of them, they do like that. Uh, or they have a mirror, they just watch themselves and what they feel. Uh, so, um, yeah, that was it. So it was in the script. Beautiful. Yes, in the back, gentleman with the hat, I think, or is that your hair too? Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, to tell that, I'd just like to, to share, uh, I'll just stand by the end here. Um, I'd just like to share um, that the way um, we put the story together, um, I got a relationship also to the royal family uh, in a way that I needed to talk to because also the king today, which is the young boy in the film, uh, his two sisters, the oldest one is, is dead, but the, the, the one in the middle, she is alive. And she remembered everything down to detail of this you know, uh, fleeing from 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 the, from the Germans here. Um, so it was so important for me to try to figure out as much as I could of who the king was and how they were, you know, discussing and talking to each other. Um, you have to re remind me about your questions, but I need to tell this because I think it's important to see that. Um, um, what we were looking for was who that man was. And what's interesting is that he came to Norway um, to the castle. Uh, he was married to a woman, uh, the Queen Maud. Queen Maud, his wife, she was actually the daughter to the British king. So, uh, you know, the king's speech. Uh, so, uh, he, when she, they went up to Norway to, be, to try to be Norwegian royals, she was longing to get back to Britain. So in the scene where they're discussing her part and that she was actually a lousy mother, 
and uh, uh, the son also accused her for not being, you know, supporting on her husband or his father, the the, the king. Um, it's sort of something I haven't created. It actually took place, and um, he was uh, living on this castle alone. Officially, um, we are all told that she went to Britain quite often uh, to to you know to train her horses and whatever. But actually, in fact, she was there all time. Came sometimes to Norway. Uh, so um, that was the situation. So that man, I, I found out that he was a man living in this castle almost alone. He didn't have anyone close. He didn't have any friends. And when he were traveling around in Norway, he was speaking Danish. And the Norwegian didn't understand Danish. It was so strange. So he tried to speak Norwegian, but he couldn't. So um, he knew that people didn't understand him. Uh, he was alone. And um, he, he then developed something which I know because I'm quite tall, and he was a tall man. Um, you do whatever it, to try to communicate. So if, if we are, you know, I've been done it for, for my whole life because I want to communicate with you and I sink a bit down. I do whatever I can do to, you know, get in contact. So he's been desperate living his life, uh, not as someone ruling, but he wants to have, make contact with people. So his body became like that. So one day he got this really, really bad pack. Thank you. Um, and that's what we then figured out was that I, uh, when Astrid, the, the princess Astrid told me that, I came in and granddad was lying on the floor, often, like that. I, d I didn't know why. And then uh, I, f um, we were, I was tracking the doctor's records and we figured out that he had a serious pain in his, in his back. Uh, and that was the reason, because I know um, that that happened to me. And the best thing is to stretch out your back like that. So whatever I saw that that was an image I could use. And, but that man was alone. And the only one he really related to, the only one who understood his language, strange language, that was of course his son and the grandkids. So the kids, that they, they were so important for him. That for whatever reason, um, he just um, he was not like like the king with all the nannies, but he was so close related to them. And 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 Anastri told that when there were royal visits coming to Norway, and they were coming into the castle, there was you know thousand people there, and and it was just like you know the, the British king or the, whoever, and then they all and then the king came in, King Hakon. Every time, um, he was starting looking for the kids first. That's strange. And then the kid came, and then he went down to the floor, and he gave them a hug. Uh, and then he took them, and then, then he raised up, and then he went over to handshake the king or the official um, person. So he was quite extraordinary in that way. And now you have to remind me about your question. Um, yeah, that was it, because then, by the end of the day, we sort of put this film together, and um, and and um, it was public um, that we have both made the film, 
and the royal family allowed us to film in the castle. So um, the scenes inside the castle is actually shot inside the castle. And um, um, that scene when you see that um, King Hokon comes up and have to say farewell to his the best of you know the, the, of his uh, his uh, wife, that's actually shot inside the castle with a small small team while the king and everyone was there. And this room, famous room, which, which I was filming, I was holding the camera myself, uh, and it was just me, the actors, and one boom operator, and we did the scene. And I was leaning into a thick door, standing there, and I saw him come in, walked over to me, watched the, that, that um, figure, and then comes the crown prince in and say, you know, we have to leave. I'm leaning there, and then suddenly I hear a voice just behind me, whispering, in the phone saying, I have to be quiet because they're filming here. And that was the king, <laughs> Harrell, because that was his office. And here were his grandfather and his father. It was just totally nonsense. And then, of course, they knew about the film, but they didn't knew about my approach and how I want to set it up. And what brings me to, to the answer is that when the film was done, uh, it was prepared and it was supposed to open up in September, 33rd of September. Uh, and I was in my car, I think in uh, one day in May or June, uh, by afternoon, and suddenly I got a phone. And uh, I, I answered, and it was the head of the whole castle, which is sort of the king's right hand. And he was calling and the king was on his side. And they called me and they said, excuse me, we just have a question. Because um, that, that was now last year. Uh, of course, as you know, um, this is a celebration because the king and queen has been ruling Norway for 25 years and we are celebrating. So we want to open our park for the public and we want to have an open air screening a film and we wonder if you would allow us to screen your movie. Um, the thing is that the occasion is four days prior to your opening of the film in Norway. Um, but, you know, we just would like to consider if you would like to do that. Um, and then the king uh, were so for standing there and there was sort of, you know, um, wondering uh, on my reactions and our reactions, uh, which of course was an obviously great sort of way of opening the film. Um, so we accepted. And by the day in September, when they had the screening, uh, they were preparing for between 1,000 and 1,500 people to show up, and we had a huge screen. It was just in the middle of downtown Oslo. And um, um, they had doing rehearsals with sound to set up the sound system in the park. Uh, and you know the scenes here with the planes and bombs. And they were doing it, rehearsal during the daytime. And people were complaining all over Oslo to the police because they think it was something going on. Is the war going on or whatever? So, you know, several kilometers or miles away, people were calling in because it was shaking in the whole downtown Oslo. It was beautiful sound. But then suddenly uh, the evening came uh, and um, 12,000 people showed up. Uh, 
the park was full of people and they were all had to sit sit down on the grass sit there waiting uh, and people start showing up several hours before uh, and and uh, the, the TV stations and news everyone was what's going on so it was live on all the TV stations all the time during the whole evening uh, and then as we were preparing starting the film suddenly among those thousands of people came the king the queen the whole family and they came walking just in between everyone without any security or guard or anything at all came down into the the middle here where i was sitting they sat down and uh, the crown prince today went up and introduced the film said said something about his grandfather and his father and, and his grand-grandfather what he learned about the story and that he was, of course, curious about what this film was about. Um, but then again, they sat down and we screened the film for two hours. And I was almost sitting there all the time, holding my breath. Not, you know, uh, I didn't want to... Uh, I, I was curious on their reactions so far, but I didn't dare to watch over to see. Uh, but then by the end of the film, um, uh, there was a massive applause. Uh, and the applause was, of course, for the film, but most of all, actually, for the king sitting there. And for the last words there, uh, you know, uh, he gave his all for Norway. So uh, it was so beautiful. But then I was taken over and, and I was introduced for them. Um, and and uh, he shared, and uh, he ha has officially allowed me to share that with you, that... Um, he had been crying for the last hour, and uh, while watching the film, he felt that he had watched his father, which is the crown prince in the film, for you know for for the last thirty minutes. It was just like it was my dad. Um, so, um, um, and and uh, yeah, so they were just so so um, relieved and and so happy for the film, um, even if they're not allowed to. To express what they feel about, you know, movies and films like that. It's strange, but they don't. Uh, but they did, and um, so of course they were. Um, yeah. So, and, and the popularity uh, among the for the monarchy has raised in Norway. Well, I hope we don't have to wait another twelve years to see you again. Please come back, make another movie, and we'll show it. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. <laughs>